Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, John, how you doing? I'm good. Hey, Jeff, how you doing? Good, how are you? Well, so good. So glad you could join us. Oh, so glad to be able to come. Yeah. Yeah. And David is here. I am. Hi, David. Hey there, Jonathan. And Jeff. Uh, Jeff, uh, uh, streamlined, he applied today and joined the class today. So, (laughs) very nice. I may have done it at work, but I'm sure they'll forgive me. So, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, I just hope you didn't regret your choice here. Oh, well, no, I don't think so. <laughs> How you doing, Jonathan? Good. How are you're, you? Your 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 name is iPad tonight. I, I should I should get another uh, handle so that there's no confusion. You can call me JW or something. Okay. I noticed so. there's lots of Jonathans. I I think actually I didn't count n- numbers. How many are in the class, John? I'm counting right. So. Of the people who have accepted the invitation, not counting yourself, there is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, plus Matt, but I think Matt's not going to come, right? Yeah, Matt may have a hard time. He's beating people up instead. He's decided decided to take a kung fu class instead. Of studying about peace and restorative restorative justice, it is a hard choice, you know. As uh, the the Didache says, there are two ways, just two. And is one of them kung fu? One of them is life, and the other is death. Oh, okay. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Matt, he has been kind of one of the founding members of PBI and Forging Plowshares, and just. He's probably done. He's done all of our classes several times. It's not like he uh, he's actually skipping out on anything. So, Brian, are you hearing us? Uh, good to see you, everybody. Yeah, good to see you again. Hope you had a. I guess it was a fairly short break, but you got a break anyway. I'm the I'm the TA in this class. I, I feel like the Earth has made a complete revolution because Jonathan came to me as a farm boy from Missouri in his cowboy boots and his big buckle. <laughs> I don't know that I had a belt buckle. Oh, didn't you? <laughs> Maybe I just imagined it. <laughs> and was my TA, my last TA, and so now I've I've worked my way up. To I was thinking it. we we could call it, you could be the dean now. Oh, <laughs> the dean of PBI. Yeah. The uh, oh, how about emeritus? All right. So uh, I know you all. Some of you all know each other. Some of you know me. Uh, I think you all know Paul. Uh, begin with you, Jeff. Yeah. Uh, my name is Jeff uh, King, and uh, I live in Edmonton, Alberta. What? Uh, <laughs> well, what brings you here? Hmm. Well, I, I happened to hear Forging Plowshares uh, podcast episode yesterday, and three of them, four of them actually, and uh, was really sense, sensing this sense that I, I really wanted to know more about about yeah, what what is God calling His church to be, 
and how is God calling us to be something that maybe we haven't been? And uh, that's something that's preceded listening to the podcast, but it was kind of like a, a trigger for me to look into this more because, yeah, I think hearing it and hearing the topics made me feel like, yeah, that's something that I, I need to know more about. And I, I not just know, but I want to really have the weight of sort of people who've thought about it a lot come into me. Wonderful answer. But an answer to prayer. David, you're next. I'm uh, David Rawls. I live in Terre Haute, Indiana, right here in the Midwest. I came across maybe a Forging Plowshares article or a podcast, maybe somewhere around 2017, 2018. I was kind of going through just, uh, I guess, a process. I don't know what to call it. Deconstruction, reconstruction, whatever. No loss of faith, just changing things that I believed for a long time. I started taking forging plowshare classes, and it's been downhill from there. That's <laughs> <laughs> good. So, Jonathan. Hey, I'm Jonathan Worrell. Kind of stumbled on forging plowshares, um, their blog and um, podcast, I don't know, probably eight months ago or so. I, I for a couple of years, have been really interested in kind of this nonviolent aspect of the gospel that I think is woefully underrepresented and I'd read a few books over over the last couple of years. I think I started with Farewell to Mars by um, Brian Zond, and um, that kind of got me interested in this, and then I just read a whole bunch of different things. But I, I believe I was just Googling an answer, looking for an answer to a specific question on a text or something, and, and lo and behold, Forging Plowshares came up. And um, I didn't understand a lot of the blog posts right off the bat. I was like, this Maximus origin, I don't know what you guys are talking about. I'm little confused but i got hooked on paul sermons pretty quick i could understand those a little better and um then you know kind of lurked in the background for a while and finally took the ephesians and philemon class last uh eight weeks and was really blessed by it and just super excited to kind of at least be part of this community and and uh just learning new stuff wonderful good so brian are you also in arkansas i am in chapel hill and by the end of this course i will be in charlotte making a transition right now. I was in three classes last year with Paul and everyone. Uh, and this is my second class this year. I'm here um, having found, just like a lot of y'all did, it sounds like the, the blog and podcast, you know, looking for something and found more than I was looking for. <laughs> just Googling. Um, it was Rene Girard that I was Googling and trying to find a good conversation about Rene Girard and Lo and behold, here I am um, all this time later, and however many podcasts I've actually gotten to listen to is probably in the triple digits. So, yeah, I'm just joining and continuing the conversation. I'm glad to see everyone here, and we've got a little bit of a, a change up in the, uh, in the teaching. That was a, seemed like a good surprise and um, a pleasant surprise for us all. <laughs> You can uh, say a needed break. Yeah, probably so. Yeah, well, benefit. I needed to break, or you needed to break. It's <laughs> <laughs> good. Alan? Uh, Alan Contreras. I live in uh, Manzanillo, Mexico. Uh, and I already took every class offered by PBI. Uh, and this one was taught by someone else. And so I know Toddy from while back and, and Mr. Axton as well. So when I heard Toddy was teaching it, I was like, hey, sign me up. I want to 
I want to see the difference. <laughs> He's being nice, but he heard from me telling him, hey, you should do this. <laughs> Both Alan and David are actually, they are representative of our graduating students. They're the finished product. Any complaints go back to Mr. Axton. <laughs> well, Paul, I guess you should introduce yourself since there's a couple people that haven't been with you for a Okay, yeah, I'm. Uh, my name is Paul Axton. My wife and I were missionaries in Japan for more than 20 years, maybe 22 years. She grew up in Japan. Uh, she's not Japanese, but her parents were missionaries there. And we ran a Bible college in Tokyo for about 15 of those years and lived out in Scuba, and I preached in a church there in... Uh, actually in an adjacent town in Tsuchiuda. We came back to the States in 2005, and I taught at a Bible college where I met several of the guys, John and Alan and Matt, who's not here. But we started forging plowshares, and John was uh, there in the beginning. Matt was there in the beginning. Actually, we started in... 2016, I think, but I don't think we actually were doing uh, the Bible Institute until 2018. We're in our fifth year. We're in Moberly, Missouri. My wife is now retired. We have three children. I have a child. My old, my youngest daughter is in St. Louis, and then my uh, daughter and son uh, live in Hawaii. My grandson is in Hawaii. So I my coming to know Paul was at Central Christian College of the Bible, and it's interesting. I ended up there because I grew up in the Disciples of Christ, which is sort of the more progressive end of what is known as the Stone Campbell movement. But I didn't really know that I had grown up in the Disciples of Christ, and the minister at my church at the time did not really know that Central was not in the Disciples of Christ. <laughs> so it uh, sent me there, and I quickly found out that it was different and probably would not have stayed if it weren't for Paul. So he gets all the credit, and then I took every class I could with him uh, and sat in on classes that I didn't need anymore and got to be his TA. And we I remember my the highlight of that experience actually was we would go to, to the park in Moberly, which was surprisingly nice. And we would take walks and we would talk about theology the whole time we were walking. So that was a great experience for me. After that, I ended up becoming an Episcopal priest. The Episcopal Church was sort of the other option. Uh, I have extended family that were are Episcopalian. When I decided, there was maybe a brief moment I thought about pursuing ordination with the disciples, but uh, in the area that I was living in at the time, that didn't make a lot of sense, and the Episcopal Church did. So, continued on. I get nervous hearing that you all listen to, I was thinking about the podcast that we've done, and now Paul's saying six years. Um, I know that I've probably grown and changed myself in those six years that I guess I, you know, used to do podcasts with Paul, and so there's stuff out there that who knows if I agree with at this point, but that's okay. Or you've heard us argue about Anselm or something, and that's embarrassing too. It's all documented, so you can go yeah, back. It's all, it's all there forever, right? Um, and I was teaching this class under a little bit of a different title called, um, what did I, I titled it, The Victory of the Lamb, Christ, and Empire. 
and taught it at my parish here without one of the books. So it was a little bit less reading. But I was surprised. I had parishioners who were willing to do all of this reading. And on Sunday mornings, we would have great discussions. And I was telling Paul about it. I shared with him what we were doing. And he said, well, you should do this for forging plowshares. At first, I thought I was sharing it with him for him to do it for forging plowshares. But I'm very happy to have been invited and to get to have this discussion with you all. I find it interesting because I kind of, um, I went the, you know, the independent Christian church route. And you disciples were our liberal, mm -hmm. um, way out there friends. Well, friends is too strong of a word. But anyhow, I don't remember anything on creation care, social justice. I mean, there was nothing, nothing social. And I just, and I feel like a lot of the waters that I've swam in, that um, sometimes that is critiqued harshly. I just wonder what went wrong. I, I, the only thing I can think of is maybe something after the Reformation, Reformation movement that there was um, a bent towards, you know, um, the whole idea of justification. That was, I mean, that was everything, right? You either, you're either in or you're out. I don't know. Uh, I mean, I haven't studied that a whole lot, but that was kind of my question. I, I wanted to talk about this because I thought it's a, it's a good place to start because you might be wondering why you're reading a book that is very Catholic um, and seems to be written towards other Catholics. And you're reading it, he expects for you to have uh, sort of swam in these Roman Catholic waters. So why would we be reading that? And it is first because there is this identifiable tradition in Roman Catholicism, at least since Rerum Novarum, which is late 1800s, I think 1894, is when that encyclical was given by Pope Leo XIII. And it marks the beginning of a tradition of Catholic, what is called Catholic social teaching. And so this is addressing, of course, not just issues in the United States. And so there's lots of American Catholics, Roman Catholics, that have never heard or engaged of Catholic social teaching, or if they did hear it, they'd probably be suspicious. Um, but it is this longstanding tradition in the church that has been given in these papal encyclicals, as well as then having been interacted with by other theologians writing on those encyclicals. I think this arises historically in the way that it does in Roman Catholicism, because up until really after World War II, though there were some outliers, if you were doing ethics in Roman Catholic theology, you were doing moral theology, and what you were studying is how to classify sins, as a priest, so you could hear confessions. You were not asking questions at that time of what does it mean to live the good life? What does it mean to be political together? Uh, what does it mean to care for your neighbor? That was not being handled in, under the heading of moral theology or ethics like it ends up being done in Protestant theology. So there's a big shift towards the middle of the 20th century uh, I'm trying to think there's a great podcast out there somewhere where a guy named Charles Curran, he's quoted in the chapter, actually. He was a professor at SMU for a long time. He's retired now. But he gives sort of the history, because he lived it, he's giving the history of this shift in Roman Catholic theology in the 20th century towards ethics in a way that we might understand. And that begins to incorporate Catholic social teaching. But up until that point, it didn't exist, which allowed for it to have its own niche in the magisterial teaching being promulgated by encyclicals. 
what that's made possible then is for us to be able to point to a body of work and say that's Catholic social teaching. Whereas in Protestantism, nothing so formal ever existed. So it's not that you can't find people interacting with these ideas, but it's not it's much more diverse for one, and it's not a body of work that anybody is working with. So where you might find it in Protestantism, I began to think, based off Brian's question, just about some historical markers. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when he comes over to you, he does two uh, two years or two semester. I think it's two years at Union Theological Seminary, and he's already got his doctorate. He's just doing extra study in this context. He is very critical at first of what the theology being taught at Union is about. And it's interesting, David, you brought up like Luther and justification, because this is why he's critical of it. He thinks that it's all social teaching, like social sciences, which mean, at that time meant specifically psychology, sociology, uh, mostly. He thought they were doing uh, sociology and psychology, and they weren't doing doctrines, say, like Luther's doctrine of justification. And Bonhoeffer saw this as a big problem. He said, these people don't know uh, their theology. They, they don't know their Luther, as he writes back to Germany. Now, he's going to change his mind about this uh, during the course of his own work. But I use this as a historical marker to say that at that point in time, and Union was already had already left the Presbyterian Church, but was probably the most prominent, what we would call Protestant liberal seminary in the United States was doing social theology. They weren't doing the higher critical stuff anymore. They weren't doing what you would have learned in Germany. It wasn't the von Harnacki and sort of church history stuff. They were incorporating sociology and psychology into theology. And that is is related to what Walter Rauschenbusch made popular as the social gospel, but it had a little bit more meat on its bones at Union. Bonhoeffer will then later write act and being incorporating sociology well he does the same thing actually in sanctum uh in his first dissertation but he's incorporating some german social thought into his dissertation already so he he's open to this it's happening in germany but it's happening much more in the united states that it plays a big part in stuff that he's writing towards the end of his life like ethics so it's there in the u.s in uh university settings around 1920-ish. But what happens? Where does it go? Well, you might just ask the same thing about where does America's openness to socialism go of any sort, not necessarily Marxist socialism. In the United States in the 1930s, people are uh, open to forming political activist groups that are informed largely by socialist ideas that have either come out of the English tradition, uh, out of the Marxist tradition in some cases, and just by and large the conversation that was dying, I guess is one way to put it, in the continent in Europe. Because at this time, you've got to remember fascism's rising in Europe. Socialism was popular in the United States, and today it seems like that would be a flip-flop of the world that we live in. What happens, I think, is cultural trends. So in the U.S., you have the biggest mover and shaker as far as evangelicals are concerned in this time period is the Scopes Monkey Trial. With that, evangelicals retreat from the public sphere and sort of hold up, and as you say, they concentrate more on an individualistic understanding of theology. But that's also in some way a return to the way that 
evangelism or, you know, I guess the gospel was spoken of on the frontier. You have to have some kind of individual, personal uh, conversion experience with God. So with all of that happening, I think that's why most people, if you haven't been trained in one of the more progressive seminaries, have not thought about Protestants having anything equivalent to Catholic social teaching. Now, if you train at some place like Vanderbilt or I think Union today or um, Harvard Divinity School or SMU, there's some people in these places that are doing social thought with theology, but usually it's in biblical studies. You know, you can think of that what you want. It does seem sort of like, uh, let's find the most popular thing now, or actually it's usually the most popular thing from 10 years ago that the literary theorists are engaging, and now let's apply it to the Bible. So that's where it exists currently, uh, where you might encounter it. But something like Catholic social teaching it is hard to find, especially in the United States, even among Catholics. Now, in my own tradition, in Anglicanism, coming out of the, this predates in some ways, uh, Catholic social teaching, in the 19th century, you have a lot more thought about the what does the established church's role need to be in connection with, at that time, there was a lot of social unrest because um, poverty was the worst it had been due to people, the basically the consequences of the Industrial Revolution. So all throughout Queen Victoria's reign, there's this little bit of instability because of the conditions that people are living in and working in. And you get some of this in like, uh, if you read Charles Dickens, you notice it, the poor houses, all of that were, were innovations really in the second half or middle to second half of the 19th century. That spurs on the Church of England to have theologians who start having these conversations as well. What does it mean to stand in solidarity with workers and laborers regardless of class? And that makes sense, of course, in a society that is much more class-based than we want to admit the United States is. So you have other names like F.D. Morris is somebody you could look into, uh, Charles Gore, um, William Temple, who becomes the Archbishop of Canterbury, was very much in this movement, etc. That ends up being things like the Jubilee Group. Kenneth Leach is somebody else I would recommend uh, to you to read. And he's recent. I think he's died recently, but he was around uh, even into the 2000s. Rowan Williams was the previous Archbishop of Canterbury, was instrumental in the Jubilee Group when it was founded in, the, I think, 1970s or 80s. So it does exist in places, but I do think there's this tendency in evangelicalism to be so concerned about the personal, your personal salvation that you don't want to have this conversation. Now, there's at least one, uh, another historical marker within global evangelicalism that stands out on this topic. It both points to the fact that there was a dearth of social teaching and uh, evangelicalism, but also that there's at least been you know, 50 years for people to catch up. And I believe it's in 1974 at the Lausanne Conference, John Stott, who is a British Anglican evangelical, uh, but was very popular in the United States as well, friends with Billy Graham. He tries to get the global even, and this is, I guess Francis Schaeffer was probably involved in this as well. He's trying to get the global evangelical movement to include social justice under that heading in its mandate. 
So a part of what it means to do evangel uh, evangelism is social justice and to be concerned with social justice. Um, that didn't work. <laughs> you know, he lost. And that's probably has to do with people like Jerry Falwell Sr. and evangelicals focusing more on politics for uh, the years that followed, uh, you know, definitely in the 1980s and on, but even there in the late 70s. So that would be my answer, that it does, it is there. It's not just a Catholic thing. Uh, it doesn't even necessarily originate in Catholicism. There are specific historical conditions that lead to us being able to talk about Catholic social teaching as a conclusive like body of work in Roman Catholic thought. It's much more difficult to identify in Protestantism. Um, but all of the readings that I upload, not all, a lot of the readings that I upload from this point on that you, you have links to already, uh, are dealing with what does it look like for Protestants to care about some of these same issues? It's helpful um, answers and what you wrote and all that that you said has really helped me think about it more. Growing up Southern Baptist, Evangelical in the South, that, that split between mainline and Evangelical has me reflecting from the vantage point of, yeah, it's missing. It's gradually, I've had to weave it in myself as I've left a center of evangelical to, uh, and, and it kind of defines my leaving evangelical. Mm. It's really why I'm here, right? Right. I mean, <laughs> is trying to find community and conversation uh, in order to think about it like, like we are. On the orthodox question, I was hoping Matt um, Welsh may be here. Uh, he's orthodox um, because that's always been a funny one for me. It's like this, it's maybe almost, so integrated within the orthodox theology i'd be interested in hearing some reflection from the orthodox perspective on what social or political um theology looks like there and like you said you're you're anglican and don't have the the history or experience with with orthodoxy but i do appreciate everything it, you're using the text about um, Catholic social teaching as our sort of gathering point. It's a good good idea. I know of a book that, uh, so some of this may be that the Orthodox don't ask the questions the way we, that we ask them, but uh, an Anglican has written a book on an Orthodox thinker. Rowan Williams, maybe uh, it's an older book. You can still find it. Uh, it's kind of pricey has written a book on Sergei Bulgakov's political theology. Mm -hmm. So at least in, and this makes a lot of sense, um, at least in the immigre community that was living in France that had been expelled from the Soviet Union, there were conversations about political theology uh, that would be a part and parcel of this social teaching happening. But the only book that I know of as an introduction to that is written by an Anglican. So, sorry, that's kind of a letdown. But uh, Rowan, uh, it's Rowan, Rowan Williams, uh, not a letdown. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He's done great work. The other people that have done a lot with this more recently are Jesuits in the Roman Catholic tradition. Uh, and then, so what Bonhoeffer noticed may not be completely wrong, is what I would say that's like a cautionary tale, that in the mainline circles, 
you can have really substantive conversation about or about Christian social teaching, and you can also have sort of silly, not grounded in theology or even you know logic conversations about social teaching. So it's a lot to navigate, and it really in the mainline circles it matters where people are drawing from. So I, I like the articles that I've shared with you that we'll get to. Actually, most of them, I guess, are chapters and books. And I, I think they're good. I hope they're pro provocative anyway. Um, but we'll get to some of those as well. Do, do you know any, anything about the sort of the Anabaptist sort of social teaching and, and how that is it connected uh, to any of this stuff or responsive? Um certainly is in like Mennonite circles and Church of the Brethren circles. And so there was, I, I've, I'm remiss, I've left out two parts of the story that are more 19th century that seem to have disappeared, at least in uh, impact. And that's so in the 19th century in the United States, there were tons and tons of Christian utopian movements uh, uh, communist, communitarian, uh, whatever. There's lots of this going on in the United States, and some of those are Anabaptist adjacent. So similar ideas are drawing off of things that maybe, as James McClendon, somebody that Paul likes to reference, would just include in the Little B Baptist traditions. Uh, so this kind of very broad Baptist movement. In the 19th century, there was lots of that going on, all of it was socially minded. Uh, so, I mean, you can think of people like the Shakers, or um, I know in Illinois and Missouri, there are whole towns founded by people who had moved west to form Christian agrarian, communitarian sort of societies, and then they just became cities or towns at some point. Uh, the Church of the Brethren was this way. Um, in Quakers, similar sort of thing. Of course, that's not Anabaptism, but very much a socially conscious movement as they moved west as well. And then the other one is the black church. The black church has always been politically minded. And uh, you know, if you think about the civil rights movement really comes out of the black church experience in the United States. Uh, an easy primer on that is just Louis Gates Jr. has a documentary on PBS, and it points out the political action in the black church and how that has always just been an understanding of what it means to do church in those communities. Some people, I think, who said this, probably Noam Chomsky, maybe like Cornell West have pointed to the black community as one of the last truly political communities in the United States that can get together at a grassroots level and get something done within their community or even within a state. Whereas more and more because of isolation, whether that's because of work um, or the internet or social media, it's been much harder for people to get movements going like there were a plenty in the 19th century and early 20th century. So it's all around us. It's just we've we've missed it. We've let it go, lost the narrative, I think, of Christianity being political and socially minded. Uh, but of course, I was thinking of other things we, we don't really read now because of his own issues, but uh, John Howard Yoder is writing The Politics of Jesus. It's a very much a social, a Christian socialism, socially minded theology. Another interesting part of uh, history we haven't named is the abolitionist movement. 
I guess, Methodism and English piety. And, and prohibition, for that matter. You know, I mean, I don't, uh, we Episcopalians didn't like prohibition, but it is that same sort of impulse that Christianity has a social dimension. I, I, as I look at this group here, you know, we, we often think of evangelicalism and kind of the isolation from social teaching as uh, having a long history. But actually, I think, John, what you're describing is, no, actually, this kind of focus, I mean, it was there in pietism, but but this the extreme focus on individualism and a kind of departure, uh, I think that that's, that's happened probably to every group represented here. Losing the political or social aspect of Christianity is a more recent thing. I think that's right. That's a good insight. What I would like us to do as we go through the class is to keep these seven points in mind. And so now, if you have any questions about any of them now, this is the time we should talk about that. But basically, every conversation that we have, and the way the arc of the class will go, is we have begun globally, cosmologically, with Laudato Si, and then we're going to think specifically about how Christians have interacted in the globe through evangelism, through missions, etc., and how that is part and parcel of colonialism, which has caused the global situation that Pope Francis is talking about. And then we will go through basically what have been the ramifications of that, whether it has to do with, um, you know, we'll talk a little bit about feminism, we'll talk about racism, slavery, all of these issues. And then we're going to circle back around to how then can we as people of faith put our faith into practice in such a way that it's socially minded, that we engage people who are different than us. And so we kind of end up having a conversation about interfaith dialogue or comparative theology. So it, it's a circle, circular conversation. Hopefully we pick up all the stuff we need to know by the time that we get to the end. But in each of those topics, you could just start asking questions or interrogate the topics according to these seven principles. So do any of them sound strange to you, or do they all make sense? Well, the one that I always think is interesting is number three, rights and responsibilities, because the idea of thinking through this conversation in terms of rights is very much tied not to theology, but to the Enlightenment. So you might ask, well, why would we want to do that? Um, but the short answer is that while Christians, we don't necessarily, we would actually probably just in an ideal sense, relate to each other on the basis of, number one, the life and dignity of the human person. You recognize the other as somebody beloved by God. You're obligated then to love them, to care for them, to do all that you can to make sure justice is done in their life. And in this sense, justice means referring to their final end uh, as much as anything else, so that it is your responsibility when you recognize the other as beloved of God, uh, which is everybody. It's not like um, that recognition isn't, oh, I'm going to decide if they are or not. It, it's what has to happen in you. Um, once we recognize the other as beloved of God, it is our responsibility to do all we can in our care that their life has an arc to it that is participating in the life of God. That's the final end or a goal of the, uh, what a human person is. So then to have a conversation about rights and responsibilities seems a little odd in that context. Why it's so necessary is because sometimes 
people are so heavily biased, ourselves included, according to doing what is right for ourselves as individuals or what is right um, for our communities. And communities often, in this sense, mean more like a, a tribals and people who are like us, people who look like us, think like us, same class. So this is why we asked the, I asked the question about social location. Kind of got to know where you're at uh, to realize where your biases may lie. And we'll do that throughout this class too. But if from the start you say, well, no, actually everybody has a right to something. Applying rights to other people takes the burden off of you to recognize their dignity and because you just do it whether you like it or not, essentially. And that's why legislating rights is not necessarily a bad thing. I'll give you a real world example. So I take it, uh, or I can just tell the story the way it happens. Martin Luther King Jr., he's trying to get legislation passed so that segregation will be ended. He wants Billy Graham, who is becoming extremely popular at the same time the civil rights movement is, uh, the second wave of the civil rights movement is really getting underway, to help out, just to say a word. And Billy Graham's response is a cop-out. And he says, well, you can't legislate a change in people's hearts, which is true. But in this sense, it's a cop-out. In other words, that is true. Uh, legislation is not going to make racists quit being racists. As uh, That's surprising to some people, usually the people I hang out with, which is old white liberals. They're shocked that racists still exist um, because it's been legislated away, right? Uh, but in any case, no, apparently not. But at the same time, the Civil Rights Acts that were passed in the 1960s and even before the 1950s had real-world consequences for material change that has uh, beneficially affected the black population in this country. So we don't want to turn our backs on uh, the idea that you can get something done by legislating rights. But at the same time, as Christians, we recognize that's not the whole story. So, you know, other ways this has worked out is especially in like post-colonial Africa. Legislating rights is sometimes the quickest way to protect people who are most vulnerable. Uh, and that's still true even in the Western world as well. As Christians, though, we don't see this as an end. So Catholic social teaching is saying both things. Ultimately, you have an obligation to recognize the other as beloved by God and do all in your power to make sure they come to their final end, which is uh, to flourish and to grow in the love of God and to participate in the life of God. But on the other hand, as Christians, uh, we ought to do what we can. And I think of St. Paul's words. Um, he's talking about slavery, and he says, well, by all means, if you can win your freedom, do it. So he doesn't see that as the goal of Christianity. It was not for him to end slavery in the Roman Empire. But when given the opportunity, I mean, you all just studied Philemon, when given the opportunity to secure somebody's freedom, he both advocated for it and advocated that others should uh, do all in their power as well. So we're not blind to the material situation of people. And in Catholic social teaching, this often revolves actually around workers. Or to put it another way, if you want to do number one, that is, if you want to fulfill your obligation to love your neighbor so that they achieve their final end, you probably think that they need a little bit of time to themselves to pray, to go to church, to um, 
you know, have community and fellowship, which means that they're not worked to death. Well, in the late 19th century, the biggest obstacle to people flourishing was that they were being worked to death, at least poor people. Uh, this is, there's another um, current event in France. The president wants to raise the retirement age, right? He wants to raise it to 64. Americans are like, what the hell, man? Like, you're going to retire at 64? Shouldn't you want to work? Because Americans are nuts. Um, but what that is, is it's really waging a war on workers. If you work a job that is heavy on physical labor, chances are your life, well, and especially in this country, uh, not only would your life expectancy be a little bit shorter than people who have more cushy uh, jobs and can see to their health better and have more time off. But uh, health insurance, this isn't true in France, but it's true here. Health insurance is different, everything else. So people who work harder in the United States have shorter life expectancies. As Christians, we might think that what would help them, even securing that number, the goal of number one, which is flourishing with God, is that they would have a better quality of life so that they would have time for leisure to ask these kind of questions, to do what we're doing right now. Um, and so that's another instance where you might seek to secure rights for somebody before securing, or before rather implementing, or simultaneously with implementing this idea that we uh, foster essentially people reaching their final end. So I always find that interesting with Catholic social teaching. It is a both and. I, I, if you all listen to the podcast about this class, I'm just repeating myself. I'm sorry. Uh, but I've experienced this myself here in Galveston. Galveston, where I'm a priest, is still segregated and very much separated into classes. So that there's not much of a middle class at all. There's very wealthy people in Galveston. And then there are very poor people in Galveston. And usually the black and brown people are very poor and the white people are the very wealthy folks. And um, the folks in charge are invested in keeping things exactly as they are. So I can look around at the community that my church is in and realize that most of the people that live in this neighborhood don't come to church. When I start investigating why, it's because they're working three jobs to survive, often as single parents. And this has to do with the conditions of this place. And so not only do they not have time to go to church, but they also don't have time to be at home when their kids get home from school or to feed their children. It's a cycle that has to be broke. Well, the way you break that cycle is by advocating a little bit of community action and advocating for rights. I myself sometimes am uncomfortable with that because my uh, experience of politics and church is people being political in the sense that they want everybody in the church to be Republicans or they want everybody in the church to be Democrats, and that's how the political conversation is oriented. Here, though, from the parishioners that I have that are often former Roman Catholics uh, or and were involved in um, social action in the community or, or are black, their idea of what it means for the church to be political is to fight for short-term gains for people in this community, or it's often in all of Texas, is what they're worried about. And so how do you do that? So that's a way in which the church might be political without ever associating with any given party. Uh, chances are, if you read all the stuff we're going to read in this class, people won't think you're a Democrat or a Republican if you start talking this way. They're going to think you're real nuts and you know, you're know you like a communist or something. But 
I don't know what to tell you. It's that's that's not the goal. In other words, the goal is to be converted to being more like Christ. We don't really care about anything else. It's Christian social teaching. So all that is in the background. We'll pay attention to these seven points as we go forward. Hearing words that don't come from Christian tradition, like rights and oh, yeah. uh, solidarity, for example, but then seeing how they get um, brought into Christian teaching. Um, and I kind of also was thinking this is probably where you're heading with some of this course as well in terms of eventually we're we're into places where we're sharing language with people who are outside of the faith. No, that's that's definitely right. So the, the point, I mean, I don't know, I consider just your run-of-the-mill secular Americans, that's just uh, sort of a heretical form of Christ Western Christianity. And that's an interfaith discussion too, because they believe a whole lot of stuff. So this is a video introduction on Laudato Si' by Father James Martin. Pope Francis has just released his new encyclical on the environment, Laudato Si. Here are the top 10 messages of the new encyclical. First, the big contribution of Laudato Si is an overview of the environmental crisis from a religious point of view. Until now, the dialogue about the environment was framed mainly with political, scientific, and economic language. Now, the language of faith decisively enters the discussion. Second, the disproportionate effect of environmental change on the poor is strongly highlighted in almost every page of the document, and the Pope provides many examples of the effects of climate change, whose worst impacts, he says, are felt by those in developing countries. Third, Pope Francis takes aim at the technocratic mindset, where technology is seen as the key to human existence. He critiques an unthinking reliance on market forces in which every technological advancement is embraced before thinking about how it will affect our world. Christian spirituality, by contrast, offers a growth marked by moderation and the capacity to be happy with little. Fourth, against those who argue that a papal encyclical on the environment has no real authority, Pope Francis explicitly states that Laudato Si is now added to the body of the Church's social teaching. It continues reflection on modern-day problems that began with Leo XIII's encyclical Rerum Novarum on capital and labor in 1891. Fifth, discussions about ecology can be grounded in the Bible and church tradition. In chapter two, Pope Francis introduces the gospel of creation in which he leads readers through the call to care for creation that extends as far back as the book of Genesis when humankind was called to till and keep the earth. But sadly, we have done too much tilling and not enough keeping. Sixth, everything is connected. Laudato Si is a systematic approach to the problem. First, the Pope links all of us to creation. We are part of nature, included in it, and thus in constant interaction with it. But our decisions have an inevitable effect on the environment. A blind pursuit of money that sets aside the interests of the marginalized and poor and the ruination of the planet are connected. Seven, Pope Francis does not try to prove anything about climate change. Rather, his encyclical accepts the best scientific research available today and builds on it. So Laudato Si draws on both church teaching and contemporary scientific findings from all fields to help modern-day people reflect on important questions. Eighth, Pope Francis critiques those who ignore the problems of climate change and especially its effect on the poor. 
Why are so many of the wealthy turning away from the poor? Not only because some view themselves as more worthy than others, but also because frequently decision makers are, for the most part, removed from the poor, with no real physical connection to their brothers and sisters. Selfishness also leads to the evaporation of the notion of the common good. Ninth, perhaps more than any encyclical, Pope Francis draws from the experiences of people from around the world, referring to the findings of bishops' conferences in Africa, Asia, Europe, and the Americas. The Pope calls into dialogue and debate all people about our common home. And finally, this encyclical is addressed to everyone on the planet and calls for a new way of looking at things. We face an urgent crisis when the earth has begun more and more to look like, in Pope Francis's vivid language, an immense pile of filth. Still, the document is hopeful, reminding us that because God is with us, all of us can strive to change course. We can move towards an ecological conversion in which we can listen to the cry of the earth and the cry of the poor. To use religious language, what the Pope is calling for is conversion. So, Martin lays out 10 things that he pulls out of Laudato Si. And I thought, because it is such a long document, if you have read, if you've underlined and things and you want to bring stuff up, that's great. Um, maybe we'll do it in this order, but we're just going to go through these 10 points that he makes and talk about each one of them a little bit. And so feel free to, I mean, I'll pause and things, but I don't mind being interrupted. If you've got a point to make, just jump in and make it. So the first one is that it's an overview of the environmental crisis from a faith or religious or theological perspective. I think in some ways it, it's striking, but this was this document is actually on the forefront of doing this. It's not that people haven't, or theologians haven't written about creation care, but Laudato Si was the first major attempt at beginning a theology of the environment. So one of the things that Pope Francis does, I think this is an interesting move because it basically opens up uh, thinking about the planet and the earth and our connection to one another in light of a whole other tradition, is he does the St. Francis thing where he says, you know, uh, you know, your brother, everybody's your brother and sister, you know, the animals are even your brothers and sisters. Pope Francis says, now consider the earth, the planet, as mother and father earth, brother and sister earth. Along with those principles of Catholic social teaching that we were just talking about, he's essentially saying we have to stand in solidarity not only with each other, but with all creatures and ultimately even in solidarity with the earth. This, uh, I think, ties in nicely to several other theological ways of thinking about creation. And that is... One, we're so used to thinking about creation uh, or the earth or time as this thing that has a beginning and an end and God sort of stands alongside of it or something like that. And we do that picture thinking bit. I think it's much better for us to theologically re recognize that what is being expressed both in the first chapter of Genesis, but also in the doctrines of creation ex nihilo is that creation itself is sourced by God's love. 
it, it is not something that God, you know, humdrummed about for a while, and then, you know, began to create in time. That that would have began assumes time. In other words, time and space are both creatures, is what I'm trying to say. And so a better way of thinking about creation is all of that stuff that God loves and made because God's love is such that God would have something besides God's self to love. This is pretty standard patristic theology. In other words, why does God create? Well, it's because of God's love. God is love. God is the sort of love that desires to love something beyond God's self. Creation is that. It's this thing that exists, uh, as St. Paul says, um, we move and we live and move and have our being in God. All of creation lives and moves and has its being in God. Being not God, simply because it is something other than God's self to love, but at the same time, it doesn't occupy some space that isn't God. It doesn't exist uh, as, you know, in a way we want to say creation is distinct from God, but in another way, it's not like creation is alongside God in some way. So that means that all of creation matters. And this has been highlighted recently, you know, even by people like N.T. Wright and talking about heaven, trying to get Christians over thinking about heaven as, oh, this place that you go to and you die, but ultimately God's plan is the restoration of all things. Uh, and that's, again, a very patristic idea. All things shall be restored. Uh, all things will be upheld. And when we say things, we already here are talking about that which is good and true and beautiful. In a sense, how God gets rid of evil is not by casting it out, because evil's not a thing, even that you could get rid of it, but rather God gets rid of evil by bringing the fullness. In the New Testament, that's the pleroma, the fullness of all things. So all things are made perfect. All things are made right. There's your uh, justification word, setting everything right. If we think about creation in this way, is something that we stand in solidarity with or the environment in this way, we have a much bigger stake in loving the planet and loving all the creatures on the planet and each other, not simply in the way that sometimes uh, you know, scientists speak of, well, if we destroy this one, we won't have any other home. Uh, it's not just that, but actually we're obligated to respect and love creation because God loves creation. It's a much deeper reason for Christians. There's a line in paragraph nine. He says, the divine and human meet in the slightest detail in the seamless garment of God's creation in the last speck of dust on our planet. He's quoting somebody. I didn't look that up, but I like that. And, you know, to, to your point, the, uh, the Christological and in, incarnational foundation for all of this is what he's pointing to there that, that the divine and the human meet, not just in Jesus's body, but in the whole thing. Well, and it, in a sense, the way I, uh, you all, if you haven't already, I think some of you have, go listen to Paul's conversation with Jordan Daniel Wood, because this is the point there that's being made in Maximus and that Jordan's making very well, is that once you say uh, creation is incarnation, you, you get rid of this idea of thinking of, oh, there was this time before Christ and there's this time after Christ. And you begin to realize that there is nothing apart from the incarnation. 
So it is the fact that heaven and earth meet in Jesus Christ, uh, the divine and human nature, uh, the divine and creaturely nature meet in this person of Jesus Christ. And that is what makes all things possible. So if you didn't have Jesus in that sense, if you didn't have the incarnate Son of God, you wouldn't have anything at all. So that's a very good point, Brian. It's Christological. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.